Hello, and welcome on in to Dogs and Autumn, the history of American football. Before we get started, I want to encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. All of it helps, and if you can manage to do all three, that'll help a whole lot. Also, consider checking out the Dogs and Autumn newsletter for content that's simultaneously broader and more niche than this show. Today, we'll be talking about early safety problems in American football. Safety is one of the primary ongoing conversations at every level of the sport today, especially as we've become more and more aware of long-term consequences like CTE. The game has made enormous strides to reduce some of the risks associated with it in the last decade and change, especially the risk of concussions. A lot of progress has been made on that front. But to some extent, there's a fundamental problem here. It's a collision sport. There will be concussions, there will be CTE in some players, there will be joint and back injuries in some players that will cause some degree of difficulty for the rest of those players' lives. This is part of the nature of the sport, as it is for other collision sports like hockey and rugby. This is the inherent tension in sports like this, and probably part of the reason that few countries boast a collision sport as their most popular sport, though most every country has at least some collision sport of some kind. This tension isn't new, it's been with football since its earliest days. And despite the claims of the game getting soft that crop up every time there's a modest rule change to make the game less harsh on the body, safety rules aren't new either. Neither are attempts to restrict football. As we've discussed before, a century ago, there was a strong attempt to ban football outright, one simultaneously stoked and partially stopped by President Teddy Roosevelt. But the problems that led to that dramatic moment in 1905 were around for a long time, as were the objections to them. Today, we're going to take a look at some of the early problems and the solutions designed to address them. I'm happy to be here, and of course, very happy to have you here as well. And what I'm going to call the archaic period of American football from the 1860s roughly through 1905, the game slowly moved away from a more kicking-oriented soccer-like game and coalesced around what was at the time a sister sport, rugby. I call it a sister sport rather than an ancestor, because the reality is that the rugby codes we know today were also evolving and changing at this time as well. And the two sports, or families of sports if you like, were very much in conversation with each other. To frame it up so you get a good picture, the two modern rugby codes, rugby union and rugby league, are two branches off of the earlier rugby tree, alongside American and Canadian football. But this was the 19th century, so there was no mass communication as we think of it today. Ideas and innovations could only be shared intermittently. Predictably, this created a divergence. One early point of significant divergence relevant to our topic today came with the advent of what was then called interference. But today, in American football and Canadian football at least, we call it blocking. We went over the development of blocking in a previous episode, but we need to circle back to it here. The legalization of blocking in football immediately changed the nature of the American game irrevocably. It's arguably the decision that made American football a distinct sport. But one thing that's beyond debate is that it made the American game far more violent. There was already a high tolerance for violence in the early game. Punching an opponent, which was called slugging in the rulebook, only resulted in an ejection after the third offense, for example. 
but blocking opened up the opportunity for what came to be called mass plays. Mass plays were formations where the offense attempted to advance the ball up the field by raw numbers and brute strength at the point of attack. The quarterback would receive the snap and hand off to the fullback for what would look like a, a dive play or something like that in today's game. But unlike today's game, there were no restrictions on men in motion behind the line of scrimmage, so blocking backs could go in motion behind the point of attack before the snap and hit the point of attack just before the ball carrier to attempt to open a lane. Today, you can only have one man in motion behind the line of scrimmage. So Smash Mouth doesn't quite cover it in this instance. Three yards and a cloud of dust is generous. More often, it was one yard and a pile of broken bones. There were also no requirements for the number of men that had to be on the line of scrimmage at this time, so you could have a mass of blocking backs in motion to build momentum for the play. This was the shape of football after the legalization of blocking. Let me paint a picture for you. The center would snap the ball backward by heeling it with his foot. The quarterback would pick it up off the ground, and because the quarterback wasn't allowed to run with the ball at the time, he would turn and hand it off either to a halfback or a fullback, usually the latter. There could be any number of players behind the quarterback, and it wasn't uncommon for the offense to set up with, quote, guards back or tackle back, which is exactly what it sounds like. Rather than having their guards or tackles lined up on the line of scrimmage, they would position them just behind the quarterback. After the snap, the back's not only not taking the handoff, excuse me, would dive into the A-gap with the ball carrier coming in hard behind them, and the whole team's aim would be to push the defense back and create a running lane right up the middle. Sometimes the quarterback would toss the ball in something vaguely like a sweet play and attempt to exploit space on the outside, but this was rare for several reasons. First, because like soccer and rugby and sort of like modern football, the sport was mainly concerned with leverage meaning having more players, physically, more numbers, at the point of attack. Sweeps to the outside tended to sacrifice leverage for speed, and since there were no receivers or tight ends yet and the pulling guard hadn't been invented, sweep plays weren't especially effective unless you had a very fast ball carrier. But there were, it was another option to open the game up at the time. The quarterback kick. The rules at this time allowed the kicking team to recover their own punt, provided they were onside at least, which in this case meant provided they were behind the punter. The rules also allowed the punter, therefore, to put his teammates back onside by simply running ahead of them during the play. This created a strong incentive for the defense to take the punter's head off. So the first roughing the kicker rules had to be developed. Penn coach George Woodruff soon realized you could get a pretty nasty advantage if you combine the guard's back formation with a quick punt from the quarterback. Your guards would have a strength advantage recovering those short quarterback kicks, and the roughing penalty meant the defense was unlikely to target the quarterback while he kept his guards on side. Essentially, you could gain a nice chunk of yards by punting. In fact, the kicking game was growing more sophisticated at this time in general, in large part as a reaction to the fact that matriculating the ball downfield was incredibly difficult through carrying alone. This was the heyday of the dropkick field goal, which was a technique that involved bouncing the ball off the ground and kicking it through the uprights on the bounce. This is actually still legal, depending on what level of football we're talking about. If you've never seen it, 
The last successful dropkick field goal was actually executed by Doug Flutie for the Patriots in 2006, at least the last one at the NFL level. And that was Doug Flutie's last action as an NFL quarterback before he retired. You can definitely find it on YouTube. You should go watch it. It's really cool. The entire thrust of innovation in the sport during this early period, though, was essentially trying to find ways to open the game up, to move it away from the violence at the line of scrimmage, because the voices of concern were growing louder and louder. Some of the early reporting on football safety issues was a little over the top. You gotta remember, this is the era of yellow journalism before any real standards of professional reportage had been fully established. You can find some pretty absurd newspaper clippings from the time, but that shouldn't lead you to believe that football wasn't as violent as advertised. It very much was. Even accounting for sensationalism, there were still dozens of deaths per year, mostly among the smaller colleges and increasingly in the growing high school ranks. And in some sense, that accounts for the two decades of inaction by football's early Ivy League power brokers. They fundamentally understood the safety issues of football to be problems of technique and conditioning, not the sport itself. This created circumstances where most of the safety innovations until 1905 were ad hoc and undertaken primarily by individuals working at the margins of what the rules allow, which is how you get your first football safety equipment. We'll talk about pads and helmets in future episodes, but it's in this period between 1880 and 1905 that the first of both begin to make their appearance on the field. They were a little, uh, janky, though, to say the least. Imagine a leather nose guard attached to the head with a bunch of leather straps. The first helmet was something like that. There's a lot of work to be done in the area of football equipment in the late 19th century. But in the meantime, a few of football's leading minds, Auburn coach John Heisman foremost among them, had begun to mull over a new idea for opening the game up, the forward pass. Heisman never deployed the forward pass while at Auburn, but while scouting future Auburn opponents, he witnessed the first recorded forward pass at a game between North Carolina and Georgia. The play was made out of desperation and probably inexperience, but the ref didn't see it, so the play stood. It also wasn't a forward pass as we think of it, but rather a pitch forward. Either way, the idea stuck with Heisman and he became a strong advocate for its adoption later on. It didn't have to go that way. The game might have evolved more like Australian football, which is actually one of, if not the oldest codified form of football in anywhere in the world. It's also an extremely fun game to watch if you're into that sort of thing. It's free-flowing and wide open, but in some respects more like basketball than soccer. However, it also features tackling and different scoring methods like American football and rugby. Throwing the ball is completely against the rules though, never mind a forward pass. But American football didn't go that way. The American game remains a deliberate and regimented game that relies so heavily on what the rest of the world calls tactics that we simply call them plays. And to this day, 120 years later, our greatest concession to opening the game is still the one thing this show has been building toward all along, the forward pass. On the next episode, we're going to go over the history of amateurism in college football. It's a practice that's lasted an extremely long time in that version of the sport, 
but its time is coming to an end, at long last. And it just so happens that in our story, we're at just the point in history wherein the idea really came to prominence. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Also, feel free to hit me up with questions or requests at dogsandautumn at gmail.com or at dogsandautumn on TikTok and Twitter. Till next time, have fun and be safe.